the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. Before we get started, I just want to remind our listeners that the contents of this recording can be very difficult for anyone to hear, and especially for survivors of violence. So in case you need to reach out for support, don't hesitate to do so, whether it's to a friend, to family members, or to an anonymous hotline. And also, we have resources listed on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. We'll give you the address at the conclusion of the podcast. Thanks so much, Claire. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. Uh, We'll start out as we usually do with a Dear Katie letter from someone who wrote to me along their own journey as I was on my journey sharing my story all over the country. So let's take a listen. Katie, what dawned on me after you spoke was the importance of addressing rape from a male perspective. When I heard you, I realized how simple, how easy, how comforting it was to imagine the stereotypical crazed rapist lying in wait, planning, disgusting, inhuman. I realized how dangerous it was as a male to distance myself from this image, how false my comfort was in building up the image of a rapist completely alien to humanity. Your speech reminded me of a sad truth that I have come to believe with all my heart that at some point, We all have the capability, the capacity for violence. I believe there is a necessity to come to terms with this fact so that we may understand our own proximity to abuse and not distance ourselves so greatly that we lose control at a point when we need to understand our own limits and controls the most. Wow, so powerful, always, always. And today our guest is Barb. Uh, Barb, welcome, and thank you for sharing your story, your journey with all of our listeners. If you don't mind, let's start out learning a little bit about you. Hi, yes, thank you. Um, So I am 28, I grew up in New York, and I am a actually new mother to a wonderful five-month-old. Oh my gosh, five months. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. So let's um, start out, you know, a little bit about what it is that happened to you that brings you to your microphone today. Of course. So 18 years ago, my older brother um, sexually assaulted me, molested and raped me um, over the course of three years. Um I am now starting to kind of speak out about it and really find my own voice, which is really kind of empowering, especially when you have something like Take Back the Night kind of backing you up to push you along. Wow. So the um, experience with your brother, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, when, where, how everything happened? Yeah. So... It really started um, one night when my mom asked him to babysit me and she was kind of going out for just a couple drinks. She was a single mother. She was fabulous. Um, But, you know, she needed her breaks just as much. Um, And she went out and it started with him kind of getting me into his bedroom. Um, So it happened in our childhood home. And he would, I always wanted to kind of grow up and you could say really kind of be like him. Um, So everything he did, I loved. 
So if he listened to a specific singer, I listened, I wanted to listen to that specific singer. Or if he did something specific, I wanted to do that. And he would kind of coax me in by saying he was going to give me one of his pre-made CDs that you would burn. Um, so that's how he kind of got me in. And it started out with just some molestation acts. And then finally, after a few times, it escalated to actual rape for about three years. Just so I'm more clear, your brother was how old and you were how old when this started? I was 10 or 11 when it started and he was 15, 16 years old. He's five years older than I am. Mm. Oh my goodness. And prior to that time, had there been any indication at all? Had he done anything at all that you would now, looking back, consider boundary crossing? Absolutely not. It was kind of out of left field. So he really kind of one day, like I don't want to say this, but really just woke up one day and said, all right, I'm going to do this. It. We were very close. Um, we, like I said, my mom was a single mom. So my father was not in the picture since I was one. So he was that light for me. And, uh, we were extremely close. He would take me trick or treating. I would go to all of his baseball games. I really looked up to him as just a human being in general. So he really took advantage of how much I wanted to be around him and loved him. And as this was going on, how, how did your feelings about him evolve? I don't think it really started to evolve until I got older. Um, Once while it was happening, I don't think it was really clicking to me what was happening. I didn't understand it. And I also didn't understand the damage, I guess, that he was doing. So it it took a really long time for me to actually click in terms of, oh, my God, this is what he's doing. So my feelings for him, I still idolized him even going into high school, like even years after the abuse had ended. I would write papers about how much he was my hero and I would post about him on social media about how much I loved him and how it's me, him and my mom against the world. And they're my biggest support until finally I was listening to a day to remember downfall of us all. And I was coming home one day from work and I just had a flashback. And I would always try to ignore them and I would always kind of just pretend like it didn't happen. And then finally it was kind of just, wait a second, like that, this isn't normal. Like, why do I keep kind of seeing these things? And then it spiraled and kind of snowballed into the realization that he traumatically hurt me. So So you had actually blocked out the rapes and the the abuse that he had done. Yeah, I I would get flashbacks and I would have these little nightmares, but n- never of like the rape. Um, I would have little memories of things that had happened um, that would kind of come up. But then as they're coming up, I would be like, nope, 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 that didn't happen. 
So if they would come up, I would ignore them and bury them and just avoid whatever I was just doing that made that come up. So how you said it went on about three years. Yeah. And what caused it to stop? He moved out. So he eventually moved to upstate New York to go to a college. Um, So that's you. That's, I believe, around the time that it had stopped. He was 18 when he moved out to go to college. Do you recall? So at that time, though, you were you were blocking out what actually happened, I assume. So do you recall if having any kind of did you have any physical reaction to his going away? I'm just wondering if anything happened to you um, in terms of your health or emotional health, physical health or emotional health when he moved. Um, crazy to believe, no. My, I, I was really good at detaching myself from what had ever what had happened, and I, I think I have. I always say I have a doctorate degree in pretending because I, when I put that mask on, it was as if nothing happened and it, it really didn't crumble on me until he had moved home when I was 25. And then that's when it, it like crumbled onto my lap. And that's when I like, really was like okay something's wrong like where I was having panic attacks almost every hour I couldn't breathe I was sweaty I was getting sick a lot I would get cold I was someone who would never get sick and all of a sudden now I'm getting a cold every like three weeks so a lot of things started happening really when he moved back home I once again was still probably for two more years I was like nope nothing's happening nope we're not doing this. Run away. Run, run, run as fast as you can away from this. Barb, when you say run away, tell me what that meant to you. Like, were you physically just, you know, running? I've, I've met so many different survivors and running away. Sometimes they'll say, well, run away just meant I wasn't going to stay focused. I would go out to bars. I would go to random places by myself. I would you know, put myself in harm's way sometimes. Like, what does run away mean to you? Run away to me became me becoming MIA. So I would kind of drop off the face of the earth. So Where would you go? Nowhere. I would <laughs> stay in my room, watch Netflix. Oh. Um, I would lose all contact with whoever was in my life for maybe a week, maybe two weeks, maybe even three to where my friends would always just be like, oh, Barb is just doing her thing. She's not like, they always kind of thought that that's just who I am. But really, that was my way of sheltering everything else out and keeping everything away from me because I I did not want to deal with it. And at that point, I knew that with all the panic attacks, people would be like, what is going on? Like, what is happening to you? So it was my way of not letting people see the panic attacks so they couldn't ask me questions. Mm-hmm. So then they would never know what had happened. So you became a master at, at dissociation, essentially. Yeah. I became a master of disassociation. I became a master of hiding and 
just playing it off like, oh yeah, like I was busy or, oh yeah, I was doing a lot of cleaning or redecorating or I would come up with all of these excuses as to what was happening or, oh no, I'm just not someone who's on my phone or I don't text a lot. Sorry. And my friends bought it. They all kind of were like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. We never see her on her phone. So yeah, that makes sense. How did it feel to have them buy into your narrative, Barb? I'm curious, you know, like sometimes there's those of us who feel like I got away with it. It's such a relief, right? It's like, I'm not really exactly lying, but I'm getting away with it. I'm, I'm satisfied that I, I pulled the, you know, the wool over their eyes. Or was it gnawing away at you that you wish they were able to catch you almost? I'm curious about that part of it. I always wanted them to kind of be like, but why, why do you go? Like, why do you disappear? I always kind of wanted them to call me out on it, but also I was thankful that they weren't. Yeah. Like almost like, Oh, if I could only be rescued, if, if they cared or if they, I I don't know. I kind of, I'm feeling, hearing what you're saying and, and thinking about those dark moments for all of us. You know, even my lonely places when I'm on a crowd in front of thousands, there's only so many people, I think, that even understand what it's, what I'm feeling, right? Or what you're feeling. Yeah. Um, But I'm I'm speaking for you, but I, I kind of hear a little bit about, you know, how myself and lots of others, I think, feel. You know, we put up our walls, we, we hide, we MIA ourselves, um, or we find little shell- disguises. <laughs> I, sometimes I think of it as a disguise, you know, we put on the lipstick or the get our hair done and, and all of a sudden we can just sort of devolve into, um, you know, part of the masquerade almost. I don't know. I'm <laughs> speaking for you. What do you think? What do you think, Barb? I always kind of considered it like I was on my own little island Mm. and no matter how much I was like, I'm floating, I'm good, I'm okay, I was drowning. And I always, I would always want my friends to be like, what is happening? Like, I understand kind of you becoming a hermit, but to go a hermit so frequently, it wouldn't make sense. What would it have felt to you if you if you had had a friend say, Barb, what's going on? I, you know, part of me is like, I would have probably shut them down and I would have been like, nothing, like, leave me alone. Like, why can't I just hermit myself? Like, why does it, why does something need to be wrong? Um, but I think looking back, I really think I needed that little nudge to actually, because I think when you start kind of, going through the process of actually what happened and start really digesting what happened, at least for me, it felt as if I was never safe. And that means emotionally, physically, and just like in relationships as a whole. So I think for me, it would have felt that I was actually finally safe in a relationship. And that would have been, I think, empowering for me because then I would have been able to actually be like, okay, this one person really did a like a toll on me but also I can be safe outside of this and I think that would have maybe even progressed my healing a little bit further but also 
at, at that time, I don't think I would have been receptive to it looking back as well. Yeah, that's the difficult piece is that, that when one can might want people to reach out, but at the same time, it's the biggest nightmare to be reached, you know, to have someone reach out. So it's it's hard to know. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I definitely wouldn't have really known how, what to do, how to do it. Because at that same time, I was also still trying to figure out what had happened. I was still trying to put all my pieces together and I would have these little, like I said, like little flashbacks and it would be a flashback of like a millisecond where I would envision myself throwing up in the sink after he forced myself onto him or he would be laughing at me while I'm choking you know, and they would be like these little things. And I'd be like, I'd get out of this little flashback and I'd be like, oh no, he's laughing at me because I choked on an apple. Like I would kind of justify it. So I think really kind of during that time, I think if my friends were like, hey, like what's going on? Like, why do you disappear for such frequent amount of times and long period of times? I think I would have been like, shut up, leave me alone. Barb, something I was also thinking about as you were speaking is the journeys we take and when we look back, cause now you have a five month old and now you're 28, I think you said, and we look back at our childhoods and those, all those people around us, right? I'm imagining you on your Island, but I'm wondering if now that we look back, we think there might've been others around us on our own islands. Like maybe we weren't the only one with a story because, you know, to me, I hear a zillion stories, but, the stories that no one tells me are the stories from all the people. There's so many survivors all around us all the time in our, in our friend networks in our classrooms at school, you know, I go back and I think, were there others, you know, were there others as I was walking through that were struggling as much as I was all the time, especially because I look at myself and one of my friends has said like, to me when I eventually spoke out to her and told her, she looked at me and said, you don't look like someone who struggles. And I, and I took that in and I said, like, I don't know how to take it, but I also took it as, you know, like that's because I've really made myself to be stronger, I think. But also I put on such a big mask. So is it me just putting on a mask or is it me just really kind of being as strong as I could be and really kind of letting things brush off in the moment? I don't know what it is, but when she said that, I was like, how many other people are like that? That's right. I know. I love that, Barb. I love that. Like, I'm just recalling some of the most important moments, like, I can remember at an Ivy League, a woman said she was raped and she's like, I'm not sure I should tell anyone because there are no governors. I want to be a governor and you can't be a a rape victim and a governor. Or I was at one of our U.S. military academies and she was at the top of her class. And she said, the guy who raped me sits next to me in the auditorium. (laughs) And, And neither of those two women I met would anyone go, oh, you look like a victim. You know, and what does the victim look like? What does the victim sound like? What does the victim walk like, talk like, you know, parent like for you? I, I, what I love is that you're, 
you know, your that part of your story is going to hopefully help a lot of others who say, I'm not sure if either I'm allowed to wear this title, I can publicly tell people because I won't look strong, or people can't imagine me looking the way I do, or sounding the way I do, or talking about other stuff the way I do, and having been through this. So I, I love it. You're brilliant for sharing that part of it, your journey with us. I, I'm so glad you did. Yeah, I uh, it it's always kind of stuck with me because... I think the further I get through like this whole healing and really kind of working through owning my survivorhood is also owning that there is no look. So I look like Barb. That's what I look like. And then I have like I am a survivor. So kind of wearing both hats but also strengthening myself in terms of I don't need to look like anything. I don't need to sound like anything has really kind of helped me be like, okay. And really setting that, that standard and that tone for me to kind of start really knowing what I want when I tell someone what had happened. Like, I don't want someone saying, oh my God, I'm so sorry to like for you, or I'm so sorry that this has happened. I just want, to say it and then to kind of just move on. I don't want this whole like thing when I'm sitting down with a, with a friend, I don't want it to become this whole theatrical moment. I don't like, I just want to be able to say, Hey, this happened to me. FYI. I'm sharing this because I trust you that much Uh and then just move on from it because that's what I'm trying to do. So I want you to be able to move on from it as well. Yeah. It's important because it's part of your identity, but it's not all of your identity. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Can we go back for a minute? Because, you know, when you started, you know, remembering and dealing with this, did you talk to, did you confront your brother? Did you talk to your mother about this? What happened? So when I first started really noticing like okay I need I need to do something about this it was I was actually I went to Boston with my now husband his best friend and his wife and I don't know if anyone's ever been in Boston market but it could be like sardines in a can and I remember specifically, usually when I'm in like big crowds, if I know I'm going to be in a big crowd, I can prepare myself and I'm okay and no panic attack will happen or I won't feel anxious. But I also need to be able to like see doors. I need to be able to see my exit routes. And I remember walking into the Boston market and it wasn't too crowded, but it just started getting more and more crowded and I felt more and more like a sardine. It does feel like that. Yeah. And I was sweating. My palms were sweating. I was shivering. Like that's how much I was, it was back and forth and it was 98 degrees outside. And I, when I started to get nervous, I kind of start playing with my rings. Like I'll tremble them. I'll, I'll swirl them around my finger, just trying to kind of make me realize like, okay, you're not anywhere, but here you are in the present. You're okay. And usually it helps, but at this one moment, I was like, I'm stuck. I can't go anywhere. I'm back in this little 10 by 10 bedroom that I was in where my brother raped me. And it 
instantly brought me into a full panic rage. And at this point, my husband or my two friends had no idea what had happened to me. So I'm belligerent. I'm screaming. I'm mad. I'm yelling about a gyro that was cooked wrong. They gave me chicken instead of lamb. And I was angry. And I remember I threw the the gyro down onto the ground and my husband looked at me and was like, what is wrong with you? Like, what is happening? And I just looked at him and I said, leave me alone. Don't talk to me. Don't touch me. I hate you. And he just like looked at me with these, these eyes like of betrayal, essentially. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, Barb, when I you, I hear you describing that, I like it because it's, it's like no one knows how close to the surface we all are to our trauma. It is just beneath the skin. I feel like at any right. given moment, it's, it's ready to explode. Um, and sometimes, you know, I don't know about you, but I just have to do something physically, I don't want to say violent, but <laughs> physically like exhausting to get out all the stress and trauma. Otherwise, beware, yeah. beware of me. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, that gyro really got it because <laughs> I like slammed it onto the ground. Well, wow. that sounds kind of fun though. I'm like ready to go get some food and slam it on the ground. <laughs> I felt so bad, especially because of how much I was looking forward I know. to this gyro. And yeah. Then I'm then I'll be guilty because it'll be wasteful. Exactly, and like in Boston Market, that's expensive. Yeah, major. Yeah. That's like a huge investment and a meal. Exactly, like a, a takeout meal. Yeah. And I imagine a few eyes were on you. That yeah, oh yeah, the tzatziki sauce just went everywhere, and people were like, "This woman's crazy. Like this mm-hmm. woman is losing her mind." And I was. You know what this makes me think of? You know all these TikToks and and Instagram these videos that we see of pe- people having meltdowns and people are criticizing them and horrible things you know where they're treating retail folks poorly or whatever um the kinds of things where they're throwing food or whatever and i'm wondering you know this isn't normally hey but this is what someone does when they're completely falling to pieces something else has got to be going on and i wonder makes me wonder if that isn't some of what's going on in some of those scenarios you know does it make you wonder too when you see that stuff it's like Oh yeah, there's there's trauma talking. Um yeah, usually I'll kind of look and if I see something that's that out of place, I it does always make me wonder like what is happening? Like why are we doing whatever we're doing? Because if you're not doing something like if you're doing this, something's tragically wrong. Like someone really upset you. And it's not the cashier telling you that they don't have chicken, that they have lamb or whatever the case may be. Yeah, something is very wrong. I was I was just thinking about um, the spaces we're in and, and those public displays of our trauma and then the vicarious trigger we may be to someone else. <laughs> you know, like it's like dominoes some days because we're having one thing happen and if we're in a public space then there's a domino effect that someone else is seeing and also then clicking on and you know i think that's an interesting idea that we're we're triggering um that also you remember when you said you know you, you feel 
supported by Take Back the Night. I think, you know, I also go back to Take Back the Night and our marches and our rallies are those public displays of those high energy watershed, get it all out there kind of experiences so that we know we're not alone. And yet, you know, so many times I'm marching past a residence hall and the people just inside or with their windows cracked open who are not marching with us and not doing their, you know, cleansing moment, um, then are, are also getting exposed to us doing our thing. Um, and it, it just is, it, there's no, it's not a win win. It's, you know, it's a, just a happen chance and not deliberately trying to make anyone else feel, you know, traumatized or triggered by our own expression of our grief, our sorrow, our pain, our frustration, our, you know, wanting to heal. So, you know, I think what we're talking about to me, Barb, is just, it's complicated, but it's so powerful that we can even speak about it. I just even like putting it on the table for all of us to mull it over and think about how we're coping and publicly and then you're on your island and then we're yeah. off the island and we're taking the ship and then we're like you know yeah. right i i like thinking about the journey because it's it is complex um the i know we're um you know we've talked about so much and claire you might have another question about you know barb's journey but i wanted to go into um beyond your triggers now and how you, you know, are, you know, coping, working through, processing, setting aside some days or weeks, you know, I, it's almost like you relish these respites when it's not front and center, and then they immediately gush back when we least anticipate them. Um, but how does your partner, how does he help you in, in this process? Um, it's kind of, First off, really funny that you said that, like, you relish in the days when, like, all of this is in front and center. And I felt mm. like my whole nine months of being pregnant, it wasn't front and center. It was gone. I There were no panic attacks. It was crazy. It was like my body took over and was like, all right, we have something more important to take care of right now. So we'll get back to this in a little bit. That's very interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. It was the most refreshing thing because for the first time in 18 years I was like I felt free um but my husband is fantastic he he sees my triggers before I see my triggers so he sees me kind of getting amped up before I even see myself getting amped up that's really cool Barb yeah (laughs) he is the only person that when I'm in that I want to be hugged as tightly as possible. Um, Are you a hugger normally? No. Hmm. I am not someone who displays physical touch. If we're like sitting on the couch, I'll like leave my toes resting against his toes. You know, like it'll be like very <laughs> small. Um, That's, that. I can picture that, Barb. <laughs> I got toe, I got toe to toe, dancing got, toe to toe. Yeah, toe to toe. Snuggling. Maybe, even, maybe like some pinky, um, pinky action, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Snuggle by toe. Yes. That'll, that'll be a new thing. Yeah. You'll get little toe mittens. <laughs> you can each wear one on your pinky toes. Exactly. So he'll embrace me and he'll really kind of, he'll get that cold compress and he, He'll find whatever he can to fan in my face, whether it be 
a notebook or whether it even be if his there's nothing around besides an unused diaper, he'll take that and just fan that in my face. Whatever it is, he will fan, he'll touch, he'll grab, and he'll remind me, like, you are here, you are with me, you are not in the past. Right. I don't know about you, Claire, but you know, Barb, when I listen to you, I get that the question we just talked about every day, pretty much like, when are you going to get over this? When are you going to stop telling the story the worst night of your life? When are you going to just be done? You don't get over big things in life to me. And that's part of the reason I think this podcast is really important is we're not getting over it. We're not tucking it into bed. We're not like putting it to sleep. We're not, you know, shutting the you know, door on our pain. We're figuring out what strategies are out there that are working for lots of us. And you've given us a zillion cool ideas, <laughs> including the new gyro and toe mittens. Yes. Like now I need a gyro on the sidewalk and I need some toe mittens. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> toe mans is fabulous. Only if they, there's no lint in between the toes. Like <laughs> I got you. Unless it's like the, the purpley blue from yeah. the latest pair of socks yes. and you just took them off. There's an excuse. Cause that means like, okay, it's, it's recent. Lint. <laughs> there you go. It's not, it's not been like not scoped crusty. out for, yeah, it's not crusty. Like it's been there for a week. Yeah. Wow. We had such a fabulous conversation with you, Barb, just you offered, you gave, you shared, you, mm-hmm painted brilliant pictures with us. I, I'm so honored to have hosted you today and um, had you share all that you did with our um, listeners. I'm sure they're going to find so many different nooks and crannies to go and um, take from what you've offered. So my gratitude, my gratitude. Well, this has been another Dear Katie podcast. Thank you to all of our listeners uh, for joining Barb, joining myself, joining Claire. Um, this is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. And just as a reminder, please visit the TakeBackTheNightFoundation.org website. And we have resources there on that page. Remember that we're never alone, as Barb can attest. There are many of us walking with us in healing and in supporting survivors and in ending sexual violence. Thanks so much, Claire. And thanks again, Barb. And for all of our listeners, we look forward to another Dear Katie podcast next week. Please uh, join us, continue on this journey, and together we will shatter the silence and end the violence.